So the last few weeks we've been working through the book of Second Peter chapter 1, and I've given you this little diagram that in Second Peter 1, Peter says that there are believers who understand the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and they get up and they pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and they say to one another, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and they're centered on Christ, and these people, he say, he says, as they, as they make their calling and their election sure in verse 10, there are going to be people who, are, who are, make every effort to add to their faith a litany of wonderful attributes, and they are going to be people who are fruitful, and they're productive, and they will not fall into headlong stumbling where they disregard the things of Christ and bring disrepute to his name. And they're going to go to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because verse 11 says that they will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Conversely, I think this passage teaches there are people who are believers. They know the Lord. But but they don't make every effort. And they do not consider the glory of Christ on a daily basis. And they just kind of float along. And Peter says about these people, they are nearsighted and blind, and they become forgetful that their sins have indeed been forgiven. And they stumble. And they will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And he, he says, for this reason, make every effort. Give yourself to the things of the Lord. See, we, we battle every day. No confession of faith says that there is within our members a continuous and irreconcilable war that goes on in the heart of every believer. And so in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to do right, evil's there. Paul says, the good things I want to do, I do not always do. And so Peter knows that. Peter's lived that. And he says, make every effort. Give yourself energetically to the things of the Lord. Because evil lies at hand. Because there's an irreconcilable war. In 1962, there was a man captured by the Israeli secret police, Mossad, in Argentina. This man's name was Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann had been part of the Nazi leadership that had carried out the final solution of killing six million Jews. Eichmann, as the story unfolds, was a high school graduate in Germany, a salesman in his father's company, uh, just a normal guy, and then he joined the Nazi party and was involved in this horrendous act. But after the war, he sl slipped over into Austria, lived there for five years, and then went to Argentina with false papers and lived there for 12 years as a family man, a businessman, good neighbor. And so he was brought to Israel in 1962, went through a long trial, and he was executed for horrendous war crimes. There's a woman there, uh, part of the French intellectual movement named Hannah Arndt. And she wrote a book entitled Eichmann 
in Jerusalem. It was about the trial. And she came up with a phrase in that book that has become discussed at length since then. And she talked about the trial, and she said, as she looked at Adolf Eichmann and heard his testimony day after day, and saw him as a middle-aged, balding, stooped man, she was overwhelmed with what she called the banality of evil. The banal means ordinary, commonplace. The banality of evil. And she said Eichmann didn't have horns or tail. He didn't wear a red suit. He was just a normal-looking guy from a very good background with a fairly good education and a family that loved him. And yet he carried out horrendous, unspeakable acts in his life. And, and the, the issue of, about the banality of evil is that it's just, it's just ordinary. And I, so, so I'm, I'm, you think about that, and I'm wondering, you know, have I really communicated the urgency of this passage? Peter says, you know, you, you, can, you can slip away. You're not going to become necessarily an, an Eichmann, but you can, you can slip and slip and slip, and you can stumble and fall and be disrepute upon the cause of Christ. Or you, you can grow and be nourished and be productive and fruitful and never stumble and receive a rich welcome. So there, there are two options here. I, I, I just want to sense in my own heart the, the urgency of what he's saying. Is, so make every effort. And I think of the statement in Proverbs 5 and 6, these chapters about, about purity and sexual living. It says this is a, uh, an encouragement to a young man to stay pure. And he, chapter 5 says this, you keep, keep your way far from the adulteress. And do not go near the door of her house. Just avoid it. And le least you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to enrich the house of another man. And at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. And you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. I did not incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Solomon says, don't, don't live in such a way that at the end of your life, when your flesh and your body are spent, just spent, you cry out, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I didn't listen to anybody. And I'm at the place of utter ruin in the presence of many people. And so there's an there's a urgency that, that, that flows from this. And so when we come to this, Peter says, you know, verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith moral excellence, and to your moral excellence add knowledge, and to knowledge add self-control, and then perseverance, and godliness last week, which is walking in the fear of the Lord, and the reverence and awe of God, and this week you add brotherly kindness and love. And then what I, my thesis, I want you to take away from this, is, is this that, that brotherly kindness is the overflow of the worship of Christ. Brotherly kindness is the overflow of the worship of the grandeur and the glory of the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I see that throughout the scripture, time after time. For example, I'm giving you several passages this morning in 1 Peter 
chapter 2. Peter's laboring in the first chapter to, to sh show the, the beauty of our salvation, this imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And he, he, he says, you know, you are not redeemed from your empty way of life by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, who, who was foreknown before the foundation of the earth, but has been revealed in these last times for your sake. And he, he just talks about the glory of the cross and the glory of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. I think it's in chapter 2, and he says, Therefore, or so then, therefore get rid of all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and, and like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so you can grow up in your salvation because you've tasted that the Lord is good. He's so good. And then he says, this continuing act of worship, verse 4, chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a continuous, ongoing process you, church, being built up. It says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare his praises. And then he gets in the area of relationships. But only then. See, it's, it's the overflow. He says be, be, be very careful how you relate to one another. Be very careful that you are in subjection to the governing authorities. In the home, be very careful, husbands and wives, how you relate to one another. Be very careful how you relate to people in the marketplace. And he gives this summation statement in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. There's the term, brotherly kindness, brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. You see, it's the overflow. The most important thing in my life as I am married to my wife and parent my kids and I'm a friend to people and I participate in other relationships is that what I do is the overflow of the glad-hearted worship of Jesus Christ in my life. That's primary. And, and so this, this whole issue of brotherly kindness is the overflow of worship. Let me read you some passages. Romans chapter 1 to 11 is all about the doctrinal foundation of God's eternal love for us and his seeking us out and his love that's never ending and the fact that Christ is praying for us and he's given us the Holy Spirit and God's call is irrevocable. It's just celebration after celebration. Then he gets to chapter 12 and you know the first part of chapter 12 probably says that I beseech you, therefore, brothers, according to the mercies of the living God that I've talked about in chapters 1 through 11, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And, and then later in the passage, this is what he says in chapter 12. He says, verse 9, it says, let, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. There, that's the word. Brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So, so once again, see, it's, it's, it's the overflow of what the Lord has done in our lives. Or, or Hebrews chapter 
12 in the New Testament. Uh, he's, he's, he's just piling on superlative after superlative to show the greatness of our salvation. He says in chapter 12, verse 22, but you, you've come to, to, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to immeasurable angels gathered in festal gathering. Huge celebration. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He says, says, behold the greatness of your salvation and the extent of it and the glory of it and the wonderful gathering of worship that is going on right now in heaven, and you've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The next statement is this. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. I, I just say to myself, self, brotherly love is the overflow of what the Lord has done in your life. Having an affection for those around you, your spouse, your kids, is the overflow of who Jesus is in your life. 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of the goodness of the Lord and what he's done for us. And then he comes to this statement. He says, but now now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But I urge you, brothers, do this more and more, he says. That's just the overflow. Or 1 Peter chapter 1 says, You redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in his last times for your sake. And he says this in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love for people, brotherly love for brothers and sisters in Christ is the overflow of my worship of Jesus. Or Mark chapter 12. Somebody says to our Lord, what's the greatest commandment? He says, greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And Love your brother as you love yourself. See? Overflow. Boom. I was reading recently about John Muir, the conservationist, the pioneer in setting aside lands for the generations to enjoy. And he was supported by Theodore Roosevelt. And God bless those guys, really. John Muir, born in Scotland to a, in a godly home, and I, as I've read his writings, I don't think he ever really departed from that. He became very mystical, but I don't think he ever departed from his faith. But John Muir traveled all over Europe and the known world and looked at this beautiful scenery, and then he came to the U.S., and he traveled out west, and when he came to what we now call Yosemite National Park, he said, wow, I found it. And so he went to Yosemite, 
and came to a place like this. This is El Capitan in Yosemite Park's beautiful, huge rock mountain. And reflecting on that, John Muir said something. When I read this recently, I said, that is a statement of worship. It's a statement of worship. If you change a few words, change. This is what John Muir said. He said, when he goes to Yosemite Park, he says, there's no pain there. There's no dull, empty hours. There's no fear of the past, no fear of the future. These blessed mountains are so compactly filled with God's beauty, there's no room for petty, hope, or experience to reside. I just thought that, that's, that's a worship statement. That, that when you're in the presence of glory, your concerns don't go away, but they find their rightful place. There, there's no room for that. And I thought that, Lord, that, 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 is, what, that is what worship is about. And then worship, out of that, it's the overflow of loving people, brotherly kindness. So there's this chain of causation. You add to your faith, moral excellence, and then knowledge, and self-control, perseverance, godness, and brotherly kindness grows out of this love. So I'm going to give you some principles about brotherly kindness, just three of them this morning, and um, so, number one is, is that in the New Testament, brotherly kindness assumes a common task, which is taking the name of Jesus out and leaving that reality in community. Second Peter 1 says, you received a like precious faith. So the faith you received is the same faith as the Apostle Peter. Chapter 2. 1 verse 2 says that grace and peace have been multiplied in your lives. Um, the, the, the church is called, he says in chapter 2 verse 9 and 10, a, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so there, there is a common task that, 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 that energizes and causes the people who march under the banner of Jesus to walk side by side, to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to, to, to be generational in how we look at the people around us, to, to pray for the coming generations. And, and God, may we carry our baton in the relay of life in such a fashion that we, we hand it off. So, so th these things to me are endemic, to reading the Bible and understanding. And I'm going to quote from a book called The Four Loves. It's by a guy named C.S. Lewis. If you've been here very much, you know I love C.S. Lewis. He died in November of 1963. He taught at Oxford. Um, but to me, one of his three or four greatest books is a book called The Four Loves. And he deals with the love of affection, with the love of sexuality, with the love of brotherly kindness, and with agape love or Christ love. And it's, I'm going to quote from the chapter on brotherly affection or uh, phileo love. Um, and I just think this, this is really good stuff. So, so this is what, what, what Lewis said. And you'll see part of it up here in a second. He said that the very condition, 
this is golden, I think. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. For the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend, close quote. Lewis says, no friendship can really arise. He said, affection can, but not friendship. And he says this. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if we're only enthusiastic for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So, so what he's saying, church, is, 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 and I think he's right. He says later in the chapter, if, if you want to discover a friend, you don't sit and stare into their eyes. You do that when you're discovering a lover. He said, you discover a, a, a friend or a poet or, or a warrior by marching side by side with them in a common cause. Enthralled with the same objective. Now, I read that I go, the church should be an incubator of dynamic friendship because we march under the banner of Jesus to impact the nations and our culture, and our campuses, and our neighborhoods, and the marketplace, and to develop a Christian mind that, 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 that takes every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. That's who we are. And, and so we, 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 go, we go forward. Um, so, so friendship is about a common task. Secondly, I'm, I just been here. Friendship is about what I call convictional impulses. You develop convictions. Again, Lewis says this. He says, among unsympathetic companions, I hold certain views and standards timidly. Half ashamed to avow them and half doubtful if they can, after all, be right. But put me back. Among my friends, and in half an hour, no, in 10 minutes, those same views and standards become once more indisputable. Individuals who have real friends are less easy to manage or to get at. Harder for good authorities to corrupt or for bad authorities, or excuse me, harder for good authorities to correct or for bad authorities to corrupt. He says, good friends make a good friend better, bad friends make a bad friend worse. And we've all experienced this. You're, you hold an opinion, hold a view, but you go into a group and all of a sudden they start talking this way and you go, well, maybe I should keep, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I can kind of tone it down a little bit. And I gave an example the first hour. It could be interchanged. I wasn't making light of anybody. But I said, you, you're, you're a Clemson graduate and a friend invites you to the Gamecock Club. And you want to go as a friend, so you go and you hear about the glory of the Gamecocks and the glory of Williams Bryce, and, and you begin to think, you know, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm on the wrong side here. And you go to the Iptake Club, and 10 minutes later, you're back wearing orange. You know, it happens everywhere. And so I need to be with men and women who stand here and who stand with convicting 
authority on the Word of God, and they just live it out. And then you'd be with men and women who, who understand their primary issues that we die for and secondary issues that we can disagree on and tertiary issues that don't make, don't make any difference, but we need to talk about the primary issues. This is what we are about. And to stand with them and to glory with them and to pray for the generations to come and to walk with them and to be with them, and that's what I need to give me ongoing convictional impulses before the living God. I was, today I was just reviewing some issues. Today is the anniversary of the death of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He died January 31, 1892, 57 years old. My favorite preacher from the 19th century, British guy, who just stood time after time in the fire as a bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. And I just kind of do an overview of his life and see where he stood and what he did. And I go, wow. And God, I say, give me boldness to speak it. Or today, I was reading, is the anniversary of the last exile in the life of a guy named Athanasius who died in 373. Athanasius was a pastor bishop in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, for 45 years. But 17 of those years he spent in exile because the political powers could not control him. And he preached Jesus. And he said, you got to go to the desert. And for 17 out of 45 years, he was in the desert. And Athanasius stood for the truth. I, 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 I look at that and I go, God, give me grace to be your man. The other day, I had a, a wonderful day. I had a, some time with some brothers in the morning, had lunch with some guys that love the Lord, and spent some time talking in the afternoon to a family that are just precious. And, and I was writing in my journal the next day. I said, you know, I'm enormously encouraged from my day yesterday with God's people. And then I put this down. Only eternity will tell me how often and how long I've been carried along by the friendship of godly men and women, and the prayers of God's people. It's amazing. And I, I just, thanks be to God for the gift of brotherly kindness. And I, I, I look at this and I go, listen, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, join a local church where the Bible's taught, where the gospel is centered, they're Trinitarian, they, they love the things, that, get involved. If people slip in, slip out of here, we're glad you're here. But listen, join a group where people are walking shoulder to shoulder and advancing the gospel and growing in the Lord and making an impact in our culture. But get involved. I thank God for my community group, for my man-to-man table. And I thank God. There's a young group of young guys I get with. They're younger than my kids every week, and I just hang out with them, and I just... Suck life from them. They're great. I leave feeling younger, not looking younger, but feeling younger. And it's wonderful. And I'm energized and built up and strengthened. And I need it. But join a group, community group, get involved. Because the Bible says to grow in brotherly kindness, shoulder to shoulder, walking together, going for it. Good friends make a Good man, better. Bad friends, worse. Convictional impulses. And in a culture that's sliding, we need convictional impulses. Thirdly, it's all about forgetfulness. I see that in the Bible. 
self-forgetfulness. I was, um, there's a book called Pilgrim's Progress written by a guy named John Bunyan who was in prison for 11 years in England in the 1600s because he preached the gospel. He died, I think, in 1688. I'm not sure, right around there. But John Bunyan was a self-taught man, didn't really go to school, but he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress that's an allegorical looking at the Christian faith that has become a bestseller since 1675. It's amazing. But late, later in the book, there's a woman called Mercy and her friend called Hope, I think, and they, they, they're, they're clothed with new garments, the righteousness of Christ. They become believers. This is what Bunyan says. It's so beautiful in his statement. He says that when the women were thus adorned, when the women were, were thus adorned, they seemed to be a terror one to the other, for they could not see that glory, each one on herself, which they could see in the other. Now, they couldn't see the glory they had, but they could see the glory of the believers around them. Now, therefore, they began to esteem each other better than themselves. One said, quote, for you are fairer than I, close quote. Another said, no, you are more comely than I am. Close quote, said the other. In other words, as, as, they, as they looked at each other and walked with each other, they, they saw more and more with a crystal clear clarity that the other person was filled with the reality of Jesus. And there's a self-forgetfulness there. I, I think that's talked about throughout the Bible. Philippians 2 says, now consider the other man as more important than yourself. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but but in humility, count the other man better than yourself. Next verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. See? It's the overflow. It's the overflow. Is your heart captured by the glory of the gospel of Christ? So, December the 29th, 1972, Eastern Airline, Flight 401, Eastern Airlines used to be an airline, it's just now no longer. The wide body jet was flying into Miami, Florida on a beautiful clear day. It crashed and 101 of the 170 people on board were killed. The pilot was a senior officer, had been flying with Eastern for 32 years. He had logged 30,000 hours of flight. The first officer had logged 6,000 hours of flying time. The second officer had logged almost 16,000 hours of flying time. This was a blue ribbon, gold medal crew. As they approached the Miami International Airport, and they put down the landing gear, front nose landing gear, the light did not come on. And... One of the mechanics or whoever said, the light's not on. And in reality, they all knew this, that if it, the hydraulic lift fails, you can manually crank it down. I mean, it's going to happen. But the pilot put the plane on cruise control, and they all gathered around. And really what happened, a $2 light bulb had burned out. The landing gear was down. They just didn't know it. It's 1972. And so as they all were gathered around saying, what's going on here, they were on, you know, Automatic flight. They circled the airport. And they were looking at it. And the plane 
unknown to them, the automatic flight control somehow went off, and the plane started slowly descending in such a way that they couldn't tell they were descending. And finally, the pilot goes back to the cockpit, and he says, oh, no, we're no longer cruising at 2,000 feet. We've got to do something and crash. And so, thankfully, they crashed in the Everglades because they say the, the, the mud that uh, covered up a lot of the people saved their lives, and they didn't bleed to death. But the National Transportation Safety Board did an exhaustive study, and Two months later, they released their report, and this is what it said in part. Preoccupation with the malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed, close quote. There's a couple of key words there. Preoccupation. Distraction. Go unnoticed. And I thought, in my life, in 2 Peter 1, forgetful, nearsighted, blind, stumble, all in the same verbiage, environmental system as preoccupied, distracted, unnoticed. I need godly people in my life who in brotherly kindness continually point me to Christ and help me not to be distracted, who call my attention away from preoccupation. And you've done that so well for me, and I thank you, year after year. We... Uh, through the years have videotaped events. We had a video camera about uh, 27, 28 years ago. We bought it. And the, 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 the system had a, seriously, weighed 45 pounds with a camera. It was back in the, back in the olden days. And I, we had that for about five years, and that's why my left arm is stronger than my right, because I carried that thing like this all over the place. And, and then we got a smaller camera, and then we put all those DVDs in a drawer in a box, and, we put, and then when we moved, we got them out, and I took them and had them transferred to DVDs. And so we'll just pop one in and watch a Christmas play up here or a PCA play or a you know, Christmas vacation and so many of you are on the film. So many of you guys were there. And we'd be sitting there and say, whoa, look at them. Man, they haven't changed a bit in 25 years. And, whoa, look at them. Man, have they changed. You know, that type of thing. But, but you come away going, thanks be to God for faithful people who spoke Christ to us year after year. That's what the body of Christ is about. I need it. You need it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day and the mercy of the Lord in our lives. Oh, please let us this week say a good word for Christ. And I pray we would not forget to add to our faith moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance, and godness and brotherly kindness and love. And I, I pray we would not become distracted 
and let things go unnoticed. But I pray it would be people understand that the overflow of the worship of Christ is to care for people. And we would walk with people who live that way. And we thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name.